We're going to be looking this morning at Luke 17, continuing our series on the Messiah. This time the title is Your Kingdom Come. And uh, we're going to be reading in a few moments from Luke 17. Uh, Just before I, I do, just sort of work my way in and let a few come back. It's always challenging when you get a whole chapter to look at, um, and, and that's been true of all the preachers, and uh, you, you know, you try and seek God about, you really can't cover the whole chapter. And so I found myself drawn back several times to the last section of this chapter, verses 20 to 37, where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, and actually particularly about the end of the world. And um, I, I, I thought, well, is that the right thing to do? And I, I just felt again and again the Holy Spirit drawing me back and stirring my own heart on it. And uh, we do live in a time when people are pretty fearful about the end of the world. Now that time is not just now, that's pretty well been through my lifetime uh, because there are some unique features of this era that uh, probably are unique, that man himself, mankind, humankind themselves, are capable of destroying the whole world. I mean, the most obvious one is the nuclear war one, the nuclear balance, so-called balance of fear or power, whatever it was, in the Cold War, but it's still there, um, that, that frankly we could destroy the whole planet. And uh, the, the fact is that today there is as much nervousness and fear about that as ever, as we have wars in Ukraine and the Middle East and whatever. It's a really difficult, tense time. The only thing I'd say is we've had a number of those through my lifetime. It's not new. It's been there all the time, really, one way or another. But uh, what is a slightly newer is the other uh, human influence, influence, which would seem to be on the climate and the concerns that, 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 that the, the climate catastrophe, you know, that the world will we'll kill ourselves and kill the world um, with those things. And there's a real lot of fear about, huge amount of fear. And it has, I say, been on for decades. But there's a factor that the world doesn't know about or doesn't believe and doesn't know about, and it is a case of knowing the truth. There's a factor that we're going to be thinking about in a bit of a way this morning. And that factor is that this is God's world, that he is sovereign over it all that he began it and he will decide when it ends and how it's it's not in the hands of human beings sin ridden though they are and all of these things we've talked about emphasize the whole weakness that's fundamental that human hearts are sinful but that's another subject but the the issues that we are so fearful about are not out of the hands of the living god And it's so important that we hear this morning and understand the reality. It doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, but the reality of how things will end. Jesus, the Son of God, who was from the Father, who is the actual image of the invisible God, who is God manifest in the flesh, the Alpha and Omega, Jesus gives us some teaching this morning about the end of the world, some instruction. Most of what we read is Jesus' words. If you've got a Bible like mine happens to be, which puts Jesus' words in red. Most of what we read in the next few moments is going to be in red. Um, it's, about, it's straight from the throne of God. So let's read it. Let's get the context. We'll see this in verse 20. <clears throat> I'm reading from the uh, CSB. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here, see there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see here or see there. Don't follow or run after them, for as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Sorry, I've got a lot of clicking here. Is there something wrong with mine? Is it all right? Just go with it. Okay. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It'll be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked him. He said to them, Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Right. (laughs) You can imagine the disciples... They're listening to this, eyes are gl- a bit like you were, concentrate. Where? Where? You once take one step. Where, Lord? Jesus says, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. <laughs> and you can imagine Peter going to John, well, that's clear then. <laughs> so, so what's that bit about before we do anything else? Well, I think it probably isn't quite as obscure as it is to us. It was probably a proverb, a local proverb, known in that part of the world, where there are a lot of vultures and uh, where vultures notoriously gather very quickly around a corpse. Indeed, they will gather around a dying person or animal, as you know from all the best films and cartoons. They circle around and they do quickly find where something is decaying or dying. And it would seem that what Jesus is saying is actually a bit mysterious, but it's a little bit more pointed. It's Judgment will fall where judgment needs to fall. Where there is something decaying and rotten, judgment will come swiftly on the day when the Son of Man comes back. So it's still slightly unnerving and lacks detail. But let's get into the passage and see what Jesus does tell us and sort of work our way down through this because there are two major aspects of the kingdom of God which are vital for us to understand, every one of us in this room. What we're reading here today is relevant to every one of you, whatever age group you are, whatever background you have, whether you're a committed Christian or just not yet Christian or just vagely interested or just visiting, or whatever range, that range and beyond, this is relevant to you. And what, hap- what is happening here when we 
dig into Jesus' words, will affect every single one of us. So we need to pay attention. Now, the context was the Pharisees who said to Jesus, when's the kingdom of God coming? Now, the kingdom of God to the Pharisees, and indeed in the Bible, is particularly thinking about, you're going to come and help me, aren't you? That's fine, Andy. Find out where I'm clicking and clacking. It's like going to the dentist. (laughs) You hope that will be better. That's okay. Thank you very much. Bless you. Thank you. Give him a hand of applause. Hand of applause. So, kingdom of God. It means the rule of God or the government of God, particularly on earth. Obviously, God is sovereign over all, but this is different. This is where people are welcoming the rule of God on earth, and God's kingdom is coming. Now, the first century Jews, and particularly the Pharisees, were really looking for God to establish his kingdom. And what they had in mind was that it was pretty clear that God would send his Messiah. That Messiah would be to Israel, to the Jews, and would make them a a superpower, essentially. He would, with his signs and his wonders and his power, lift that nation out of its obscurity to become perhaps the world-dominating power, sort of like the kingdom of David and Solomon only on steroids. It would be an amazing time, and uh, they would be top dogs in that kingdom. And that was the Pharisees' view, but actually it was probably pretty widespread, as we'll see in a moment, amongst all the Jews in the first century, including the disciples of Jesus, who are all part of this um, crowd listening to his teaching. And it's probable that the Pharisees weren't really um, sure Jesus was the Messiah, although some might have still thought he might have been, but the disciples were more that way. But they did wonder if he was Elijah or a prophet, and he would give them some details about when this was actually going to come. And they were hoping for those details soon. Now, just to show you or to remind you, really, if you know your Bibles, the disciples were pretty locked on to this view themselves. So even after, for example, after the crucifixion, the two on the road to Emmaus, we haven't got this coming up, they, they say without their depression and despondency, we were hoping Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They're not thinking of our view of redemption from sin, but redeem Israel, uh, basically the Messiah who would lift Israel out of her, her, her doldrums. But even after Jesus was raised from the dead, but before the day of Pentecost, notice, the disciples say this to Jesus, Acts 1, 6, They've heard some of his teaching. He's come alive from the dead. And this is what they say. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? They still think it's going to be an earthly kingdom which Jesus is going to beat up the Romans and establish Israel. I mean, that's still in their minds. And it's really only the day of Pentecost that completely changes their worldview, changes their paradigm. And that's important to remember. The Holy Spirit comes on them and from the inside out, something explodes. And when Peter stands to preach on the day of Pentecost, he's got it. This is about something for the world. This is about something that will happen inside of you for all, 
far off for all nearby. He says this on the day of Pentecost. You know, if you repent and put faith in Jesus, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and you will know what we know, that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's, he's got a, a mission to the whole world. And, and it's exciting, but it's interesting that prior to that happening, they were still mentally a bit locked in to this old idea of the kingdom. Now, Jesus is going to teach them in this passage different. But as I've just said, the disciples don't fully get it till the day of Pentecost. Now, what Jesus teaches, which is so important to understand, is that there are two aspects to God's kingdom coming on earth. Coming. Your kingdom come. There are two aspects. There is a now aspect, the way it's come now, and there is a not yet aspect. There are, some, there are things still to come. And that is so helpful. And that, that Jesus gives insight to, helps us to understand actually quite a lot of our Bible, including big chunks of Isaiah and how you interpret it. It really is helpful. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the one sent from heaven. He is bringing the kingdom. But he's got two phases to what he's doing. There are two comings of Jesus to earth. And now and are not yet, the first coming, which is actually happening here, and it obviously happened 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, is when Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem, came in weakness and hum- humility and humiliation, came to suffer, to die on the, in the shame of a Roman cross. He came as saviour with good news for the whole world. The kingdom is here and you can get into it. You can come into God's kingdom. You can know God as your benevolent, loving king. Sorts of things that were echoed in that scripture that John Pickett read to us. You can know God like that as your father, the one who will keep you and look after you. You can come under his benign and benevolent rule, personal rule in your life. He came as a saviour. There's a second coming of Jesus. Now, both of these are bodily and personal and will be in history. No doubt about that. And on the second coming, Jesus will come in power and glory. Won't be with humility and humiliation. And he will put all his enemies under his feet. And you could say he will come as judge. So the first time he came as saviour, the second time he will come as judge. He is the king. He's God's king. He's God's Messiah. And his kingdom has come and is yet to come. Now that is so exciting and important. And we need to understand we live, we live between those two bookends of history, of this last phase of history, between Jesus' first personal coming and his second personal coming. Coming as saviour and coming as judge. We live now. And we need to know what now means for us in terms of the kingdom of God. It's not that different from what Jesus is actually saying at this point, certainly the first part. So we're going to look at the two things. We're going to look at kingdom now. And let's look at briefly the first verses where we've got verses 20 to 25 in what I've just read because that's sort of focused on kingdom now. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and quite quickly focuses more on his uh, disciples, although actually I think probably both were still lingering and listening. Uh, now, as we said, the Pharisees and indeed the disciples expected some sort of political uh, warrior king. 
and some sort of uh, superpower, to Israel to become sort of superpower. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom does not come in that way. Actually, the kingdom has come in his arrival, and it is in your midst. There is another way that phrase in the original language could be translated, and I like it. It could be, instead of in your midst, within your grasp. And I want you to hold that in your head all morning. The kingdom now is within your grasp. You can be in the kingdom of God. You can have that revolutionary change in your life. Many of us have, but we need to wake up and realize what a wonderful thing it is. But the kingdom now is within your grasp. It's in your midst. And it's obviously wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, some of the Pharisees were clearly a little more drawn in than others. It was quite difficult for them. There was cancel culture in those days. And if certain Pharisees, and we can see little shades of it with Nicodemus and with with others, uh, certain Pharisees who showed too much interest, they got a bit frozen out. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he wanted to know more about what Jesus was talking. So let's re- talking about. So let's read a few verses from John chapter three, and just get a bit more of the now of the kingdom of God to understand it for ourselves. So, John three verse one. There was a man from the Pharisees, notice, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can, you enter, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. That is a message for this age. Just hear it. You must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, says Nicodemus? Now, there's a bit of a few more verses, but basically the verses I'm now going to read, which are a few further on, sort of answering that in a way. How can these things be? Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, or the margin would say this much, which again is quite nice. For God loved the world this much, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Boy, do we need to get that last verse. The first coming, he didn't come to condemn and to judge. He came to save. But one day he'll come as judge. You need to know him now as saviour so that you're ready to meet him as judge. You need to be in the kingdom now so that you are in it in the not yet of eternity. Amen? And that's what Jesus is teaching this 
Pharisee, Nicodemus. He said, look, it's not about a political takeover. It's not a political thing. It's not a power grab by Israel or anybody else. What this is about is that God is coming to bring his kingdom to your hearts and to change your lives and to make you part of his great project of redemption and salvation and hope for the world. And the way for that to happen is you're going to need a new birth. It's not going to take place on the outside. It's going to take place on the inside, literally in your midst and in my midst. I think there's a truth there. The kingdom comes in here with new heart, new spirit, born again of the Holy Spirit. How? By faith in Jesus, what he did on the cross. He died for you. He died for me. He bore my sin. He bore my judgment. He bore my pain. And with his stripes, I'm healed. We, he, you know, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we put our faith in Jesus. That all comes to good for us. That's all applied to us. Jesus, come into my life. Be my king now. And as we do that, we come into the kingdom of God. We're born again of the Holy Spirit. It's a, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Romans. It's all about that. It's not externals. Not, I mean, it impacts external. It changes how you behave. It changes how you pray. changes what you do. It's so exciting. But it starts in here. And it's within your grasp. It's within the grasp of men and women across our planet at the moment, at the moment, anyone, whosoever, will may come. Anyone who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I can do nothing on my own. I can't earn this. I, I'm just a baiting up failure and a sinner. Just comes and, and, and expresses your need. He says, I'll welcome you. Come into my kingdom. Eternal life is yours. It's an eternal kingdom. Born of the Spirit, a spiritual kingdom, and it's all centered on Jesus. There's a, a lovely quote, which may have gone up, I don't know, from Matthew Henry. Look for the kingdom of God in the revolutions of the heart. Now this, you perhaps don't know who Matthew Henry is. It's, it was 400 years ago. 400 years ago, okay? He's a Puritan writer. Beautiful, godly writing. He's done a whole commentary on the Bible. When he wrote this, there were things like this happening around us, him, quickly. The Civil War in England, which was a political, violent movement. You've probably heard of Oliver Cromwell, especially if you live here. Oliver's Battery and all the rest of it. Um, and it had a strong religious element. And, and, and within it, there was this sense of bringing the kingdom by, by force. Now, that echoes through history. It's not always Christian. Others do it. I mean, the French Revolution, which would have been a hundred or so years later, is again trying to set up utopia, trying to set up this wonderful idealistic world through force. Same with the communists and Soviets and, you know, and, and even, you know, the Hitler, the Third Reich, a thousand years of wonderful rule. And then there's Christian and Muslim expressions of the same concept. And it's all wrong. No failing human beings are going to set up the kingdom of God with swords and guns. You're not going to force anyone because human hearts won't allow you to. God's got the only answer that works. It's to change the heart. It's not political. As dear uh, old uh, Matthew Henry says, look for the kingdom of God in the revolutions of the heart. 
And today, brothers and sisters, don't get too carried away on politics. It's all got of some interest, it's some value, it's another subject. But actually, you're not going to change society through political means. It's the revolutions of the heart. And I've lived long enough to see all sorts of parties in our country try and do their best thing. Right and left, and there'll be another change soon. Now, I vote, I don't disrespect them, but in the end, they are not going to put our nation straight. It's a revolution of the heart we need. And I pray for it. I pray for revolutions of the heart. That's how the kingdom comes now. Now. It's, it, no more than the first century. It's not a, a sort of empire political by the gun or the sword. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. It's revolutions of the heart. Amen? Now, just before we move on, Jesus quickly says some instructions to the disciples, which we won't linger over, but in verses 20, 23, he didn't turn to them. He warns them, and it, this applies to us. He says that dark times will come in the now time. That's a clear implication. And uh, God's people will, will long for him to come back. And we do. I long for him to come back. And he warns us to be careful because he says all sorts of people will say, well, he has come back. He's over here. He's over there. And people will have all sorts of speculations and secret timetables about the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus is very clear. Do not be deceived. He says, there will be absolutely no doubt when I come back. It'll be like the lightning across the sky. There'll be no question, has he come back or not? It will be dramatic, it will be sudden, and you will not be able to predict when it happens. Let me say, that is reassuring. Don't get too carried away. Christians do sometimes, trying to speculate, trying to work out a timeline when Jesus comes back, a graph. Ooh, how near are we? And, you, you know, you get, you know, don't. It's actually pretty straightforward. We're in the now time. Let's take the gospel to the whole world. Keep bringing the kingdom in the heart, revolutions of the heart. And one day, he will come back in person. And that will be unquestioned and no doubts. And it will change everything. Everything will change. The world will change. It will not be a minor, slow, sort of evolutionary drift. It will be wham, and that will be it, the day of judgment. And if you're not ready now, you won't be ready then. That's what it says. Let's move quickly on to the not yet, the second bit. It's probably about the fourth bit, isn't it, really? But never mind. <laughs> Kingdom not yet. And that's in the sort of uh, verses 26 to 37. And Jesus is referring to things that for us as well have not yet happened. Let's quickly look at a, verse in, uh, a couple of verses in Acts. Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. This is before, just as Jesus is ascending back to heaven. I love this because of its clarity, actually. After Jesus had said this, he was taken up as, uh, taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going... They were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, two angels. They said, men of Galilee, this is the disciples who are standing around, oh, where's he gone? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? <laughs> Which I always find quite amusing because of that. You know. oh. 
Why do you stand looking up in heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. I don't think that could be clearer, do you? Basically, this same Jesus, the resurrected man, son of man, Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, but he's a man. He, this same Jesus, in person, in the same way, will come back as you've seen him go into heaven. And in the angel's little gentle reprimand, there is a warning to Christians. Don't stand around staring into heaven. Get on with what he's told you to do. Be my witnesses to the whole world. Get filled with the Spirit and go out with this gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. Don't stand around saying, oh, is he coming back yet? Can I see him? Oh, look, I think that's him. Oh, no, no, it's a duck. No. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Look, look out here. Let's get on. The kingdom is here. It's here now. But he will come back in the same way. Amen? It's very important. Very important to believe that. Now, actually, when he comes, he's going to come as judge. And, you know, this is important. And actually, to some degree, is comforting as well as challenging. The world is not going to be ended by human stupidity. It's not in our power to destroy it. If God doesn't want us to destroy it, it, we won't. The day will come when God will bring an end to war, to terrorist bombs, to totalitarian oppression, to exploitation of people and abuse, to exploitation of the planet, to all the things that grieve us. There will be a day of judgment. Of judgment. It will not go on like it is forever. There will be justice. There will be a judgment. And the one who will be the judge is this same person, Jesus Christ. Look at these verses from John 5. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. So God's judgment will be through a man. A man who knows what it's like to live on this earth. Who knows all that you know he knows because you can read it in the Gospels from the birth onwards. Knows the Herodic oppression at childhood when his parents had to be refugees and flee. I haven't time to list the things Jesus knows, but most of you will know them. Jesus understands what it's like to live on this world, sin-sick world. But he is the judge. And we all will face him. Everyone in this room will meet Jesus as judge. Now, you can be sure of security on that day by knowing him as your Savior and Lord now. Lord, you've already taken away my sin. I'm already, I know you already. I'd love to see you. I long to see you. But you're already my Savior and Lord. You love me and I love you. You're my beloved. This is true. It's true for a Christian. It can be true for you this morning. But if you don't know him, it will be a fearful day. He will be your judge. All that you've done wrong, all the messes you've made, you think, well, I'll tell him a thing or two. You won't tell him a thing or two. 
The Bible tells us we will be silent before him. Bible, Bible strikes me as accurate on these things. We will be silent before him. Because he knows every thought. He knows every intention of the heart. He knows the context. He knows the reason. It will be a, a, a valid and faithful judgment. It won't be a quick dismissive thing like some crude autocrat. But we will know that it is a right judgment. And that is a scary thing. It'll all make sense. Let's make sure we know him as our saviour and our Lord now. And judgment has already fallen. It fell on him. You don't want it to fall on you. I've got another scripture. Okay, we'll read it because it just reinforces who's the judging. Let's just read it. Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. This is Paul preaching to the Greeks, the Athenians. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's just hold that sentence. Now. See the word? Now. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Now there is hope. Now there is an answer for your sin. Now, repent, which means turn. Turn from your old way of life. Turn from the way you're going and turn back to God. Because he has, God has, set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. See, there it is again, by the man he's appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the Christian gospel, brothers and sisters. You can repent and know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and friend now. But God, and only God knows it, has set a day. Nobody else knows the day God has set, but God does. He's set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus Christ. He's appointed to do it. And he's provided proof that this will happen by raising him from the dead. This message is vital. You need to get it. This is more important than your daily newspaper or your news, or the latest, whatever. This is vital for us to live with. We need to live in the light of what I'm talking about. Now, you don't go talking about it to everybody all the time. I don't mean obsessive. I mean your life is is under the light of this truth. That I'm actually a pilgrim here. I'm in an in-between time. I'm bringing the kingdom. I can bring healing and deliverance, works, words and wonders of the kingdom. I can tell people about this wonderful saviour, this wonderful friend, this wonderful hope. You can be in the kingdom of God. But one day, he's coming back and he'll be judging me and judging others. And it's a sobering, sobering thought. And Jesus now unpacks that a bit in these uh, last uh, section of what I'm reading. He tells us something of what's going to happen. I don't think I'll be able to do all the scriptures I had because I, I don't want to get too complicated on this. But, but as you read it, the verses towards the end, uh, before the bit about the vultures, <laughs> as you read it, there are some very clear issues. Issues which are picked up uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. For example... You don't need to put this up on the screen. But for example, in Matthew 24, we're told this about the end. Jesus says, 
Uh, I'll read it. You can put it up, actually. Sorry, I shouldn't be such a fusspot. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So this is Jesus talking about the end again. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is Jesus teaching. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the world to the other, uh, from one end of the sky to the other. His elect are the people who already know him as their saviour and lord. The people are in the kingdom already. And they will be gathered to him. Now, Paul took, picks that up as well. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians 5, uh, 2, 1. The reason I'm saying that is, actually, this business of one is taken, one is left, would appear to be, in my opinion, that at the end... Those who are followers of Jesus, who are in his kingdom, are gathered to him before judgment falls on the rest. I don't necessarily think there's a time lag, but I think that there is a clear evidence that there is a gathering to Jesus of his own at the end. Now, that's for those of you who are a bit into this sort of thing. <laughs> but actually, other Christians think, well, maybe the people who are taken away are taken away for judgment. And I expect you could have a nice debate about that over lunch. But it's it's, it's not really the main point. The sober main point, and that is an important one, is there is a separation. And at the end, there is a separation, and it's pretty, pretty challenging because we're not talking about distant people at this time when Jesus comes back as a judge. It's people we work with, live with, sleep with, and there will be one taken and one left. Now, whether they're gathered to Jesus and one left for judgment or taken for judgment and one left for Jesus, as I say, we can argue till the cows come home. But the point is the separation. And that is sobering. That is sobering stuff. The decision I keep saying is being made now. Your decision. You don't have to think, oh, I wonder if I'll be taken or left. No, no. You can know that whether you go up or stay down, you'll be with Jesus. That's the bit you need to know. But there is a sober truth here that people around us, one will be taken, one will be left. It's close to home. It, it's a crunch point. And I think in it, there seems to be the implication that the world will not all be Christians when Jesus comes back. There will be a lot of people who aren't in the kingdom of God. And actually, that is reinforced by the references to Noah and Lot, Noah and Lot were taken out of a position of judgment. And uh, I think it would be hard to think that at the end, the world will be mostly Christian. I don't think that's the implication of this stuff. I, I personally expect the world to get quite dark, but I, I, I'm praying for the church to be very bright, that we shine brighter as the dark gets darker. And I'm looking for revival and for many people to be saved. And I expect it. But I don't think we can expect that the world will be Christian. That's not the implication. So this is a sober truth. And it means that we need to be very alert to this issue. And as I'm coming towards the end, there are a couple of things that Jesus refers to that bring this home to us. And the most clear one is remember Lot's wife when Jesus says that. So we'll just linger on that for a moment. Just before I say it about Lot's wife, he refers to Noah and Lot, Jesus does, and he says, 
you know, it'll be as in their days. And they were saved at a time of judgment. Now, I want to say to you, if you read the story of Noah and Lot, and you can read it in Genesis, they were not paradigms of virtue. Both of those men got so blind drunk that they were abused by their kids and they didn't know what had happened to them. Listen, both of them got so drunk that in different ways, and in Locke's case it's very unpleasant, they were abused by their children and they didn't know what happened to them. They were not perfect people. Lot obviously wasn't. He was quite half-baked and he needed to be persuaded. But he did ultimately believe the angels and run away and escape from Sodom and Gomorrah. But the reason I'm telling you that is this is none of this. Kingdom, one separated, you know, one taken, one left. It's not about our virtue. It's not about we're good people. We've got it right. We've got it. Lot got it right. Lot didn't. Lot was a terrible mess. But God came and saved him, and he had enough sense to obey the message of salvation and, and get out the city. And that's what you need, enough sense to believe the gospel and bring it home to your own life. You, you do not need to be a paradigm of virtue. You, in fact, probably really aren't. None of us are. I'm not. That's not. We're not saved by what we do. It's what Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. And it's very important to remember Noah and Lot were not perfect. But what about Lot's wife? <gasps> She's a warning. Jesus uses her as a warning. Remember Lot's wife. I, and this is the bit I want to finish on because it's quite sobering when you let, if you don't know the story, I'm not going to go into it, but Lot's wife, obviously was his wife, and Lot's wife would have known all that Lot believed. But clearly, she did not believe it herself. She went along with it to a degree. She came out of the city but God very specifically said, you can read it in Genesis 19, you can read it for yourself, do not look back. The word of God was, do not look back. I think we can assume it means a little more than just looking, but lingering and staying near, looking. She clearly didn't believe it. She clearly did not really like the whole idea of leaving, Lot, uh, leaving Sodom and Gomorrah she did it out of duty to her husband, half-heartedly. She clearly took no notice of the instruction not to look back. And we have to assume she sort of lingered and looked and got caught up in the judgment and was herself destroyed. Now, what's the lesson there? And it's a sobering one. In a way, she represents all who know Christians, I'll be honest, kingdom of God people. Not perfect people. Lot was far from perfect. Remember that all the time. But people who might be spouses or partners or friends or children or parents or just relatives of people who are in the kingdom and do believe the word of God. And, and, and someone who sort of goes along with it a bit, sort of comes along sometimes, sort of, it's a bit of a respect for it but never really believes it, never really thinks it's probably true. Is this going to really happen? And, and actually their heart is, I think, I think it's a bit over the top. I think we should stay in the city. I don't think we should get too mad and too silly about this. Can we not stay here? I like this place. I want to stay here. That's what his wife's attitude was. And Jesus is issuing a warning. And I can't belittle it, but it's a hope with it. 
at this point in time and history, you're alive and you're in this room. <laughs> you can remember Lot's wife and take notice of that. You need to know Jesus for yourself. Don't rely on your parents. Don't rely on your children, your spouse, your friend, your relatives. You must ask him into your life. It's wonderful. It's not horrible. It's glorious. Come and be part of his kingdom today. There is still a chance. There's still hope. But remember Lot's wife. She left it too late, and she always reckoned that really it probably wasn't true, and she should stay back where she was. And it, in the end, she was caught up in the destruction and judgment that came on that city. So it is sober, but you, it's not all bad news. You can know Jesus for your sa as your Savior and Lord this morning. And before we do anything else... I, I want to finish by giving you a simple prayer you could pray. Now, I'm not manipulating your emotions. I want to make this very clear. You can pray this prayer in, on your own. I'm deliberately not going to ask you to raise your hand or come forward the, because I feel it could be a moment for some of you to become a Christian. And I want to, to read this prayer, and if you mean it, you can pray it with me. And then I'd like you to tell someone just please tell someone before you go home. Maybe the person you came with or maybe someone you know in the church. If you don't know anyone, come to the Connect desk and tell someone, Connect Point. But I think that's what seals it, that you mean it. It's not, but honestly, I appeal to you. I didn't know how to put this other than the way I've put it. Remember Lot's wife. Don't leave it too late. Don't think, but because your friends or your relatives that you're sort of caught up in it, you'll be okay anyway. No, no, remember Lot's wife. You need to know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and make sure you're confident, I've trusted him for my judgment is on him and I will see him as my Lord and Savior when he comes back and I won't be frightened of him. Amen? So we're going to pray this prayer. You're going to if you want to and then talk to someone afterwards. So it's very simple. Let's take a few moments to do it quietly, carefully. Thank you, God, for loving me before I ever loved you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you that I can get connected to you now, today, because you are alive today. I admit that I've lived my life without you and I have messed up. I ask for your total forgiveness and I commit myself to you, Lord Jesus. Help me to submit my life to your teaching and to your direction from now on. I receive you into my life and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can enjoy the fullness of God's kingdom now. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a kingdom of light, a kingdom of righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. One day you'll, enjoy, you'll look forward to I look forward to seeing Jesus.
Not because I'm so confident in myself, I'm confident in him. I want you to all be in the same position. Okay, God bless you.